Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kellen McPherson today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. First, Mark Dunley reports on the Food and Water Watch's emergency volunteer meeting to discuss efforts to undercut New York's ban on fracking opportunities and actions to preserve New York's fracking ban. Then, we highlight New York comedian Mike Bredice, and we ask him about his recent experience of giving a roast. After that, Anne Diggory spoke with Sina Bazilla Hickey, about her current exhibition at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga and upcoming talk. Finally, this Saturday, December 16th, Lisa Schoenberg will be presenting her work at Old Growth Playback for new Soundworks at the Sanctuary. She'll be joined to talk to us about what to expect. But first, here are your news headlines. The Times Union reports that two stores at Crossgates Malls are offering hijab headscarves and popular women's clothing from Muslim-majority nations, which immigrants and refugee advocates say reflects the increasing diversity in the area. The Ellis Island Initiative, a newly formed coalition of labor and business stakeholders, have launched an initiative to combat anti-migrant sentiment by touting the economic benefits the stream of new workers could bring communities in upstate New York. Its members include the Business Council of New York and the New York AFL-CIO. The Times Senior reports that the Board of Regents is seeking funding to spend $20 million on hybrid schools for students in the juvenile justice system. That would uh, be primarily online instruction, but with live teachers. The board also wants to address challenges such as power generation capacity in moving to electric school buses and create a system that tracks students through their various schools and into careers to see if their education produced to see if their education produced results. 14 years after the state first began to provide significant funds to assist low-income New Yorkers in civil court proceedings. Thousands of New Yorkers' most vulnerable residents are still largely heading to court without an attorney or with one who is overworked. For important civil cases that include domestic violence, tenant evictions, and parental rights, the Times Union reports that public defenders, attorney working for legal aid organizations, and others say the continuing impact of poverty has stubbornly outpaced the state's investments made over a decade ago. The state's judge says the top, the state's top judge says the courts would need an extra nearly one billion dollars annually to adequately address the problem. The Gazette reports that the Saratoga Black Lives Matter is being attacked by some on social media for anti-Semitism and being pro-Hamas in the wake of its Friday night march in Saratoga. The group, however, rejects these contentions as unfounded, noting the rally was to call for a ceasefire in Gaza and humanitarian aid in the region. The rally included groups such as Jewish Voices for Peace, Karen Carmeli, who is a Jewish and an Israeli citizen, and she saw no anti-Semitism during Friday's demonstration. The demonstration came the same day as the new U.S. vetoed a United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire in the region. 
DEC says the cleanup of a Superfund site at 222 South Ferry Street in Schenectady has been completed. The site was home to the crockery warehouse in the 1880s and a, repair, and a trucking repair shop and storage facility from the 1930s to the 1960s. RPI is part of the founding of AI, or Artificial Intelligence Alliance. The group's 50 members, led by IBM and Meta, will look to foster advancements, mitigate risk, and prioritize safety and diversity as AI technology advances. In a 4-3 decision, the state's Court of Appeal agreed with the Democrats to give the bipartisan restricting commission to the opportunity to redraw lines for the 2024 congressional election. Last year, the courts found that the legislative adoption of congressional and state constitutional provisions favoring the Democrats failed to meet the standards laid out in a new constitutional provisions resulting in a lower court redrawing the lines. The new lines elected enough uh, additional Republicans to swing control of the National House away from Democrats. I think skip PNS. <laughs> and that's it for our headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Call 518-272-2390. So a newly founded Texan company is attempting to evade New York's fracking ban with a scheme to drill thousands of wells, frack with carbon dioxide, and construct a dozen gas-burning power plants. The company, Southern Tier Solutions, wants to use carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels to extract even more fossil fuels. It's a dangerous example of why carbon capture and sequestration, known as CCS, is a false solution to climate change. Mark Dunley reports. We're talking with uh, Eric Weltman, uh, one of the senior organizers with the Food and Water Watch. And on Thursday, December 14 to 6 p.m., they have a webinar, virtual meeting coming up, New York's fracking ban under attack. So Eric, w w what do you mean the fracking ban's under attack in New York? I well, the law is saying no to that. Yeah, by just by way of a little bit of context, uh, nearly ten years ago, New York scored a historic victory against the fossil fuel in industry when first Governor, then Governor Cuomo, um, declared a ban on fracking, and then about a year later, that ban on fracking was enshrined into law. For folks who may not remember, uh, fracking is a dangerous method of extracting uh, oil and gas from shale that involves uh, typically massive quantities of water, uh, sand, uh, and chemicals um, to extract it, to break open the shale. It's, it poses a tremendous threat to our water, our health, and community's environment. And it was indeed a historic victory when New York banned fracking, like I said, nearly 10 years ago. Unfortunately, we're facing a new threat um, posed by a, a newly formed uh, company from Texas that wants to come in and drill thousands of wells in the southern tier, um, frack them using uh, carbon dioxide, 
uh, and then construct as well about a dozen power plants to then uh, burn uh, the, the, the gas that's been uh, fracked. Now, when I first read this proposal, it seemed like let's put everything bad about trying to, you know, control climate change into one package and, you know, put it together. I mean, they're, they're talking about, you know, extracting more fossil fuels, they're talking about carbon capture. How does this thing even pass the laugh test? You know, frankly, it doesn't. Um, one of our colleagues, uh, Irene Weiser, she, 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 she put it very well. She says the proposal is an example of the feeding frenzy for federal tax credits, because keep in mind, all this carbon capture is, is heavily subsidized by the federal government. Um, and incentives that are designed to prop up the fossil fuel industry. Uh, it is a dangerous, destructive, unsustainable experiment because it's never been done to before, not even in Texas. I mean, for God's sakes, the company is, is based in Texas, and for some reason they want to do it here in New York. And that, Mark, as you well noted, it consists of a, a grab bag of, of false solutions that will perpetuate our reliance on polluting fossil fuels while diverting investment and human resources from the real solutions we need for our energy's transition. Um, but so that's that. those are the talking points. Um, but the reality is, Mark, as you well noted, this does not pass the laugh test. Uh, and where we, Food and Water Watch and our allies, many of which were involved in the original fight to ban fracking many years ago, are determined to stop it. And while this may not pass the laugh test, apparently this company has been out just signing hundreds or something of, of leases out in the uh, southern tier area. But I understand so they're going to drill thousands of wells and then they're going to frack with carbon dioxide. How are they using the carbon dioxide in this fracking process? So, yeah, this, Mark, this is a, a, it's a, it's a dangerous proposal. And we are going to be calling on, on Governor Hochul and the legislature to, to ban it. Uh, and by banning it, I mean not just this particular proposal, but the whole process is all together. It, it's dangerous. It's untested. And, uh, you know, if it's not covered under the existing fracking ban, then it, it, it must be banned so that we can continue, you know, forging ahead you know, to, to, to meet our, our, our climate goals, New York's climate goals, without you know, utilizing this, this untested proposal to, you know, use carbon dioxide basically as a replacement for, 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 for water. So that's the idea. And it, it's, it's complicated. Again, it's untested and it's unrealistic and it's dangerous, but involves expecting that somehow um, this carbon dioxide will remain underground, which we know it's it's just not feasible. I mean, everything leaks, including carbon dioxide. There's a risk of contaminating our water from natural radioactivity underground. There's a risk of earthquakes, for God's sakes. Um, so, Mark, we we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, and we need Governor Hochul, Hochul and we need the legislature to to extend you know New York's fracking ban to cover this this dangerous practice as well. Now, we're speaking on uh, December 11th. A couple hours from now, the COP28 will um, finish. One of the big fights there has been on the issue of phasing out uh, fossil fuels, finally, with a clear date. 
that appears to be losing. But one of the issues was the United States told the world it supported the concept of phasing out fossil fuels. But what it really was doing is saying, we want to phase out the burden of fossil fuels, except for the existence of carbon capture. So as long as you have a carbon capture mechanism, then it's okay to use fossil fuels. It just seems like this carbon capture is the new you know, frontier for the fossil fuel industry to figure out how they can continue to do what they've been doing in terms of driving global warming. Absolutely. And and Food and Water Watch has been, you know, on the forefront of you know critiquing carbon capture as a as a false solution that is heavily reliant on massive federal subsidies. And it's really nothing more than a lifeline to the fossil fuel industry to maintain, you know, New York and the nation's reliance on on on, on fracked oil and, and gas. And so yes, we are calling for actually a, a statewide ban on this kind of practice here in New York. So we're urging Governor Hochul to not only oppose this particular proposal by this Texan-based company, but we're gonna be calling for uh, a statewide ban altogether, um, you know, whether it's to you know, the legislature or the governor, but you know, Food and Water Watch and our allies, again, many of whom you know, were, were involved in a successful fight to ban fracking so many years ago, we're gonna take this to the next level and 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 ban this this dangerous false solution. Now, while this newly formed Texas company has been running around apparently the southern tier buying up leases <laughs> and they've made some presentations to I guess like local chamber of commerce type groups to talk about their ideas. They apparently they have not yet applied to anything to, to DEC for permission to do this. Is not at all. Anything? So there's you know there's a lot that we know about this proposal and there's an awful lot that we don't know. Um, and partly this is a consequence of them, you know, knocking on doors before even applying for a single permit. Um, but we're going to send them a loud and clear message, uh, not New York. Uh, I mean, they can take, you know, they can try to experiment on the environment in Texas. Uh, we obviously hope they don't manage to do so. But, you know, as you, as you know, Mark, we have a tremendous track record here in New York, not only of, of banning fracking, but but halting fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, uh, dangerous pipelines and power plants. And by the way, uh, transporting, you know, carbon dioxide by pipeline is itself very, very dangerous with a lot of risks. So from A to Z, this proposal is dangerous. It's untested, it's unproven, and it's unnecessary. And Food and Water Watch is determined, just like we determined to ban fracking many years ago, we're going to stop this proposal too. Now, this forum is Thursday, December 14th, 6 p.m., New York's fracking ban under attack. And so you go to Food and Water Watch Facebook page, webpage, find out. So in the last 60 seconds, people want more information about Food and Water Watch, what you're doing, or anything else you're working on. What do you got? Well, folks can visit our website. It's simply foodandwaterwatch.org. Again, that's www.foodandwaterwatch.org. If they want to contact me, Eric Weltman, I'm a senior organizer uh, based in Brooklyn. Um, they're welcome to find my contact information on the website and, and shoot me an email. We'd love to hear from folks. Well, thank you very much. And this has been um, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine.
to register for Food and Water Watch's virtual meeting this Thursday, December 14th at 6 p.m. That link is in the description to the story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Today, on our last comedy interview of the year, it's sad, but we welcome an amazing comedian, Mike Beatrice, onto our show. Hello, Mike. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Excellent. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you, Mike Breedice. Um, So you were telling us before the interesting story of how you got started, which was really you were the um, door person at at a comedy space. So how did you make it from the door to the stage? Just uh, getting a, you know, watching the process of comedy like every night over and over again just how how a show runs starting time how many people should be through the door before you start like when to hold all that good stuff i kind of i was i was into that for a little while and then i was just kind of like i want to do it myself you know i'm watching these you know world famous comedians every night i'm watching them do their acts some of them two different acts two different shows back to back and i'm just yeah i was like i want to do it myself i want to give it a shot and see how it goes and uh just um started hitting the local mic scene uh in in the area and just kind of built up a good five minutes and went from there so there's many different styles of comedy what is your if you were to explain your style of comedy what would your style of comedy be observational i would say just kind of talking about the absurdity of life <laughs> oh. situate weird situations i find myself in i tell stories so you can put me into that category as well do you can we get an example of one of those absurd stories um yeah like like generally not to recreate your your stage presence but like is it communicating with people in the everyday or is or, it or talking something very strange and unexpected? Making a story um, out of an audience member or. Yeah, actually, well, I, I do a fair bit of talking about the mall itself. Cause that, you know, that, uh, I, I my, the funny bone that I work, I work at a funny bone. That's in a mall, Crossgates mall. And that, that mall itself is, um, uh, you know, you can, you'll see some strange things going on there for sure. So I find myself, there's a good chunk of my act dedicated to that. I talk about that a fair amount. Um, I'm not like either that, or I have a story I tell about bringing uh, my daughter to see the Easter bunny and you know how that was a very weird thing for me to do as an adult, especially when, you know, I had to do it for the first time since I was a kid, just uh, seeing how that the other side of it, the apparent the adult side of it versus the kid side. So, yeah, yeah. Malls are such an interesting phenomenon because they met their peak in like the 80s. And I was just listening to a podcast about how they keep trying to reinvent them. Do you find that malls um, have a different, like what's different with the malls currently now since you're spending more time than I am than from like younger years and, and it's maybe heyday? Actually, um, in my opinion, I would say there's a lot less for kids to do at this point i would i think yeah no i truly believe that i feel like there was more uh yeah like just more kid areas kids stores than there are these days 
which could lead to the problem of you know you bring your kid there and then they're bored they start getting into mischief and that's huh. that's how that whole thing goes but but there's like I know at Crossgates because I've been a couple times there's arcades and things so there is definitely stuff for kids there. Um, I I um I hate to hate to tell you, man. Uh, they uh they took away the arcade. It's not there anymore. <laughs> so I want to go back to you watching what's happening on stage, and then after a while, observing, deciding you wanted to do it yourself. What were some of those things that you um, just learned through the observation of the routine uh, putting on of a comedy show? Um, some things I've learned. Um, always um, have a good time. Like feel the time, know the time, because you don't, you don't want to go over. Um, know your act. To it to an extent, know your act for sure. You don't want to get up there and start dropping the ball. Um, yeah, again, it's it's all everything is. I swear, everything in comedy is. It's all about time. Just uh, always be early. Check out your crowd. Know your crowd for sure. Um, yeah, speaking of the crowd, I mean that's something that I feel like you can't prepare yourself for it. Right, once you get on the stage. The crowd is different every day, right? So how have you dealt with that? And do you sometimes get curveballs from the audience? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I do. Um, again, I try to get there early to see people walking into the venue. Um, let's see if they're older, an older crowd. Maybe I'll change up a few bits here and there. Cater it a little bit more towards an older crowd. Um, a big show versus a little show. I can kind of cater my act in that way. Um for a bigger show, obviously, I, I, well, I don't know if it's obvious and maybe not for everybody, but for me personally, I feel like uh, I do much better with a bigger crowd. I can be a lot more loose. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking about like, you're talking a lot about sussing out the crowd and like paying attention to them, which is very much the job of a door person, right? You're kind of predicting who's going to maybe need a little extra attention you know maybe they're drinking a little too much right do you do you see that overlap between the way that you're sussing out the crowd as a comedian and the the work that you had at the door yeah absolutely definitely that's a that's a very good i never actually really thought about that that's a very good point yeah because like you know some crowds are obviously going to be a little bit more rowdier than others i i tend to like a rowdy crowd Again, it just it allows me to kind of get away with certain bits and jokes that I wouldn't with, we'll say, like an older kind of crowd. You can push the buttons a little more. Is that what you're saying? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I can. You know, I could say a thing or two that might get the audience to go, ooh, instead of one. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um. You recently did the roast, right? What yes. is a what is a roast, and how do you prepare for one? Oh man, so a, a roast is where you um uh you have like a guest of honor, or you know like you're the main. Uh, for example, it was my manager at the uh, Funny Bone. We were roasting. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, we were roasting my boss. So for this, there were many levels of uh, difficulty for me personally. Um, that's like so brave. Uh, yeah, you get a bunch of people together that you know or that the guest of honor knows and you kind of make fun of them. 
um, I felt that the challenge for this was not only was it my boss, but you, you can't. Some of the jokes I was writing in the beginning, they were just mean. I, I'd run them past other people and they, they'd be like, I, I wouldn't say that just a little too mean. So I, I found the first challenge is, uh, you know, if you're going to if it's going to be mean, make it funny and maybe not mean, maybe just naughty, if, if that's the right word. <laughs> so you want your jokes for a roast not to be entirely mean. You want a funny aspect to them. Yes, definitely. You want to you want to take that. Uh, yeah, that. I, again, I'll use the word mean, but yeah, you want to take that mean and then just make it relatable and or funny so that, you know, other people can kind of relate or especially if they know that person, which they they tend to at roast. They have an idea of who the guest of honor is. They uh, they get to laugh about it as well, because we all know that what we're all saying, there's some truth to it. So it's kind of like making sure that the person you're roasting is in on the joke rather than feeling bad about it. Yes, 100%. I also uh, found a challenge for that to be, sometimes I found myself complimenting in the writing process more than like making fun of, which maybe that was just me. There's just some people, because not only do you make fun of the guest of honor, you make fun of all the other roasters. And some of those roasters are my friends. So, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> I, I didn't want to be mean to them. So I'd end up saying right. compliment, trying to find a, like, almost like, I tried to make a compliment mean spirited and it just wouldn't work. I'd end up being like, you know, you're actually a really good looking guy. You speak well in front of other people. And then before I know it, it's just a list of compliments. I'm like, oh, I didn't get anything out of that. Isn't that, can that be a, a comedy style too? It's like the apologetic comedian. Yes, definitely. For sure. <laughs> I was going to say, you must be brave to roast your boss. Oof. Yeah, that um, I had to watch what I said for sure. I definitely, you know, I, I went to my I went to my girlfriend. I said, do you think this is appropriate? I went to a, a couple of other comedians. So do you think it's appropriate? And overall, I, I came up with a few few bit, good bits for her. So this kind of work is very much about towing the line. Is that something that you can learn? I mean, there is like comedian school, right? How, or I guess maybe more of the question is, how easy is it to learn that line? Um, and how much of it is kind of like you have to have the intuition to begin with? Oh, um, that is, uh, that you, you, depending on the joke and the writing, you don't always know. This is why it's very important to go to open mics and things like that, because then you get to like test it out on, on at least a small certain audience. Like, was that too far? Sometimes you find you can actually even go a little further, you know, some people, you know, further into the joke or further into like even the uh, like the, the again, naughtiness of a joke. And uh, but I've definitely uh, I've gone to an open mic and I, I've definitely gone too far. Sometimes it happens to all of us. It's part of the writing process. You have to you will make mistakes. You will say things that you probably sometimes shouldn't have said. That actually happens, you know, <laughs> and, you know. So, yeah. Do you think it's important for when a new comedian is starting to sometimes fail, bomb at, at shows? Is that a good learning curve? You, it, no matter what you will bomb that is it, it's how do you deal with bombing is the more important thing honestly because um i i mean even to this day I, I no matter you will always bomb no matter what that's something that you just have to accept at some point in this line of work is 
not everybody's always going to want to listen to what you're going to have to say. Not everybody's going to like you. And that it's unfortunate. And, but that's just how it goes. You will bomb and it hurts a lot. <laughs> it hurts right in, in the feels. It gets you every time. It's, it never feels good. You just gotta, you gotta learn, Hey, this is part of the process. This is how it goes. I'm not always going to win them over and, Hopefully that can lead to you writing a little bit better in the future, or maybe tweaking your joke, or maybe it's just the crowd. It, it could be a mix of both, any of those yeah. things. Well, Mike Breedice, we have about uh, 90 seconds left. We'd love to follow, um, keep tabs on what you're doing. So what is the best way to find you? Are you on social media or somewhere else? Yes, I am. I am on uh, Facebook. You can get me at Mike Breedice Comic. That's M-I-K-E. B-R-E-D-I-C-E, comic, C-O-M-I-C. That's on Facebook. Or I'm uh, I'm also on Instagram. That's dreaded777, dreaded. My, I have dreadlocks. So D-R-E-A-D-E-D-777. And uh, yeah, if you follow oh, yeah. me, you can get all my comings and goings. You can get everything, all my show dates or whatever I have coming up. And currently you don't have anything uh, set, but you'll have something in the new year? I'm kind of hoping to, I would say, keep a, keep an eye on my social media. I'm trying to work something out within the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, hopefully I uh, nail it. I'm trying to open for a comedian that I like that's coming to the funny book. Yeah. There must be something else to like, like set things up for somebody who you admire a whole nother set of nerves. This oh, has 100. been a pleasure to speak with you and, I hope that we'll hear from you. You'll come on again next year. And and definitely in person next time. Yeah, for sure. And th thank you for having me. This is awesome. Um, yeah, no, I, I look forward to the next time we get to do this again. And uh, hopefully next time I have a couple dates lined up for you. Yes. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you. Goodbye. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend or shout it from the rooftops. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And Digori doesn't paint nouns. Instead, she paints feelings, energies, and juxtapositions. Digori's work is currently showing at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga Springs, curated by Belinda Colon. Degordi also says that the thumbnails of paintings fall to convey their size and detail, but you can see her work until February 10th, 2024, with upcoming talks. Sina Bazilhicki talks with her to find out more. Currently at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga Springs, Anne Diggory is showing her work, and these are beautiful landscapes, and she joins me now for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Welcome, Anne. Thank you very much. So I do want to, since your work is a visual medium, begin by introducing our listeners, giving them a little bit of a visual idea of what your artwork looks like. How would you describe your work? 
Well, it's interesting to try to do this verbally because one thing I say to people is um, I don't paint nouns. So you, I don't describe my work as saying, um, oh, I paint mountains and water and trees and rocks. Um, that would be like taking a song and saying it's about a person, but you have no idea what what's happening there. So it, to me, um, I, I like to paint about the energy in the world that I see in front of me. Um, and I often use as subject matter, I use landscape elements. And I have a preference, sort of a bizarre preference for things that are moving and changing. So clouds and water. Um, and so to some extent, my job is to freeze them into shapes and colors, but then make them move again to give them some energy of that world. So the the show is called uh, Near and Far, and it's basically on several levels. It's nearby in the Adirondacks, um, a lot of a lot of water because I enjoy painting that. Um, it's very evocative of a lot of moods and things. And then a series from um, southern France where I spent three weeks um, painting. So there's that near and far. And then a lot of the paintings involve a juxtaposition of what is near to you and what is far away and trying to get some kind of connection between them. And often the same light is hitting them um, or there's an energy of shape talking to each other. Sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're disconnected. So that's interesting to me. And the sort of the third, uh, more esoteric part of near and far is the surface of them um, is the near. You're touching it, you're making brush strokes on it, but the far away is that sense of illusion. So sort of on those on those three levels. Your description is a way that I couldn't even begin to explain. So it's wonderful <laughs> to hear you articulate that. I am looking at your website right now, and it is it it do it does feel very much like you're capturing that moment where. You've been outside all day and suddenly you look up and it's that moment that really stays in time and the clouds have just this like gleam, the the angle of the sun is hitting in, in just that right way. There's a, so much to look at um, and you do it so well. And um, I was seeing a canvas behind you and you, do you always begin with a bit of a beige canvas? I often do just to give it a bit of warmth. Um to start with, it's also a lot easier if you're painting things that are white, like clouds and water, um, you have to, to make them show up, you have to have a dark around them. So if the whole canvas has a slight tone to it, it's, it's easier to lay in with the, with the things that are light colored. Um, so that's one reason. And I often leave areas untouched and it's almost more interesting to have some color to it, even if it's untouched, if it's just a, a very tan or, um, Sometimes I've, I've used other colors, but um, that's a, a favorite kind of orangey color to it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the energy, it's you talk about that magic moment where all of a sudden the light lights up and something happens. And that's often sometimes what inspires me to get started. But as anybody who knows who paints, within about five minutes, it's gone. <laughs> so you have to wait for your the strength of your memory and maybe the light will happen that way again. Um, but in the end, it's what's happening in the painting. So um, I'm a bit different from some plein air painters and then I will start when I'm out there um, and, you know, have woken up from camping and all of a sudden there's this gorgeous sunrise and I rush down to the shore and start painting it. Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me, the important details 
probably happened back in the studio. I I can I sort of make it similar to a a conductor. Um, a conductor has all the instruments there, but you've got to pull out the lights, push in the darks, push up that color, maybe remove those branches. They didn't work. Um, so in the end, it's what's in the painting, not necessarily what's in the landscape. So that's often a, a challenge that I have. And how long have you been painting and how do you see your style having changed over that period of time? Well, I've been painting, I've graduated as an art major about 50 years ago, which makes it that long. And that was an education that was important to me. I was at Yale, a lot of art history, a lot of theory, a lot of why does one paint um, attitude, even though I'd entered as a math major, but that's another story. And um, then learned a lot from nature itself. A lot of time spent out of doors, seeing how forms congeal and um, fall apart, what happens with light. So nature has been sort of my teacher in many ways. The, in terms of how the work has changed, light has always intrigued me. Um, structure, shapes that are interesting and talk to each other um, in sort of rhythmical ways. The subject matter, the nouns have changed over the years, but you probably the styles are, are connected. And there was a time before I moved to Saratoga Springs, I was inventing crowds. I would take, you know, 10 people doing 10 different things and he'd have 100 people on a canvas. And then we moved to Saratoga and all of a sudden there were, you know, 20,000 people next door. So I I ended up painting the crowds and sometimes the horses, but only little ones in the background um, for a while. And then decided that that took up a lot of my summer. So I spent more time. Um, in the Adirondacks or in other areas. And, you know, I think the the big change probably that, that this show has an example of is about, oh, maybe 12, 13 years ago, I got involved with combining some photography with my painting. Um, so that in the images, when you see the finished work, you start trying to figure out, so some of this looks like photography and some of this looks like painting. And there's, I like that kind of mystery of people trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. And that started with, I was working on a painting and trying to figure out how to finish it. So I took in Photoshop, I put the painting in Photoshop and then started dropping some photos in to see how to finish the painting. Um, and instead, I got really excited about how that contrast of photography, that sharp detail, and that believability, it, how it sat with the with the painting. So I, um, with a friend's help and with um, finally a commercial printer, found ways to come, you know, take a picture of a painting, add little details of my photography, and then print it on the canvas um, so that I would then rework it. And so it's it's sort of like a, a cook an Oreo cookie. It's a little bit of paint, a little photography, and then paint on top. Um, and then the show includes, I guess, five or six actually six done in that method. And that's what's one thing for the talk that's Friday night that I'll be giving giving people always are curious about that method. So I'll be actually showing the process um, via my computer how how that kind of process works people ask so why do this and to some extent it's it's when you get back to the music and the orchestra kind of idea when you have a song there are words and then there are sections where there's just sound and i like the photography and the painting working together because sometimes there's 
a lot of detail and you can tell what's what it is and then there's sections that you have no idea really what's happening but the music of it contributes to the rest so sort of that's sort of a snippet from my talk on friday i was very pleased with the um the way the gallery looks with its work from the last five years but mainly the last two years and it was carefully selected by belinda colon who's the curator for the gallery and um, it's always nice to have someone else looking at your work and helping make those choices. So you mentioned that talk, which is December 15th at 7 p.m., and it's taking place at the Spring Street Gallery. It's inspiration to expression. Yes. What else can uh, listeners expect from that talk? Um, part of what I want to show is uh, the contrast of different kinds of work and how they start and how they finish. Um, so I'll be showing um, photographs of the motif that inspired me uh, and, and then showing uh, versions of them as they as I worked on them. Um, a lot of even though I think the painting needs to stand on its own as it's finished, it's sort of like the being able to look at a poet's first draft. You then understand what words they decided not to use or what lines they left out. So by showing some of the earlier stages of the painting, um, I'll show, um, you know, what were my first choices? Why did I leave something out after putting it in? Um, and then sometimes the fascinating part is when I thought it was finished and it was in a show, hmm, I think I'll make some more changes. You know, what is it about that final expression that um, made me to kind of make a few last minute changes? And I think in the end, those are the ones that are most important, probably, for the expressive nature. And it's not just adding detail. Sometimes it's taking detail back out. That's part of what the talk will be about is, and it'll be for a regular straight painting, which is on acrylic on canvas. It'll be for the hybrids, which start as a painting, but then go through photography and then paint again. Um, and then some little tiny ones as well as, you know, what's the difference between inspiration to expression for a small piece or a large piece? I understand the process of an artist is very interesting. So you're talking to me in your studio and color changes in different settings. You're using paint. Oh, yes. <laughs> you do seem to be in daylight. Do you paint in daylight or do you have a certain light temperature that helps you to come to a specific a specific color? I, I do like to paint in daylight. Um, part of <clears throat> one of the paintings I'll be showing is a painting at Buck Pond in the Adirondacks. And to work on it, I had to stand in the woods looking out at the lake and it was very dark in the woods so I would just keep I would paint and then I'd run back to the shore and look at it and then bring it back in and work on it because I needed more light to actually see what I was painting when I get back to the studio I do use um, daylight lights in my studio and I discovered uh, once depending on how warm or cool your lights are it can really change the color I, I once there's one uh, painting in the show that has a lot of purple in it and when i started it i thought they were sort of brown um but as oh, i this, yeah <laughs> you change to uh you know a warmer um light uh, or a more daylight excuse me or daylight and all of a sudden and i thought okay okay i'll keep that color that, that you know i toned it down a little bit but um yeah color they actually say you know to paint under the lights that it will be seen in an exhibition or in someone's home and those are slightly different um 
But if you know what the gallery is that you're going to show in, then probably <clears throat> it would be good to have at least uh, have seen it under those conditions. And Diggory, I'll save my other questions for your talk. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. What would you like to let our listeners know about your artwork or your process in painting? That's a good question. Um, probably just to trust themselves looking at paintings and try to understand, look at them and why, is, why are you affected by one and not the other? Um, you know, can you figure out what some of the choices that an artist has made, um, whether, you know, where they've been, uh, what choices they've had? And I think it's it's a lot of seeing, but seeing art in the real world, um, not just looking at it on the Internet. Um, that's a huge difference in seeing real live painting. And so that's why I would encourage people to come to the exhibition. Some of the pieces that look three inches high on a computer screen are actually five feet square. So I think that that's, that's an important thing to think about. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just for listeners, the your website is diggory, that's D-I-G-G-O-R-Y dot com. Yes, thank you very much. More about the exhibition and, and upcoming talks at diggerordy.com. Lisa Schomburg will be presenting a body of four new spa spatialized sound works that are the culmination of old growth playback, which asks us how we can listen to the present to speculate about future old growth soundscapes and our role in them. Musicians Nina Isabel and Brian McCorkle will also be presenting work that evening. That is December 16th at the Sanctuary. And Lisa Schoenberg joins us now. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. We've been really excited to present some of your work. You've done some interviews. We had your workshop recently, so frequent listeners might recognize your work. But for those who may not... Could you tell us a little bit about the type of sound work you do and your type of uh, the type of work that you do as a musician and artist? Yeah, so um, I'm a percussionist and composer and um, ecological sound artist. So I do a lot of field recording and listening in outdoor spaces and all sorts of locations and use those recordings and observation, like ecological observation, to inform the composition of music and sound art. Um, and a lot of that work, I focus on hidden sounds or what I like to call cryptic sounds. So sounds that are beyond the limits of normal human hearing. And I also tend to do a lot of work on insects. Um, but this particular work that I'm presenting this weekend actually doesn't really have much insect sound, but it does have a lot of cryptic sound. So what specifically are you going out and recording? Yeah, so it really depends. Um, two of the works that I'm presenting this weekend are both featuring water. And it's really amazing how broad a variety of sounds there is within water, within one stream even. Um, so I use a hydrophone to record those. And actually in our workshop the other day, down at the boat launch in North Troy, we got some really amazing sounds with the hydrophone in the Hudson there. Um, and then other sounds that will be featured this weekend are um, a set of sounds that I recorded by 
placing contact microphones on the forest floor. So contact microphones are microphones that pick up vibration through surfaces as opposed to airborne sound. And um, I dropped different items that might fall from the forest canopy onto the floor. And that sound was picked up by the contact mics. It's picking up the vibration of those pieces of needles and lichen and moss on the forest floor. So some of that sound is in the works on Saturday. I record ants and bees and wind and rain and yeah, birds sometimes. In this specific project, the old growth playback is a project you've been working on since 2018 from the forests of Oregon. Mm -hmm. So how did you begin this project? Like what is the beginning of this project and how has it evolved to what you're doing in Troy this year? So the beginning of the project was um, as an artist in residence at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest in Blue River, Oregon. So that's for those of you who are familiar with Oregon, it's about an hour and a half east of Eugene in this beautiful forested area that's actually experienced quite a lot of fire in the last couple of years. And they have a long term ecological study program there where scientists look at these specific locations over 200 years, and then they've added a layer of artistic investigation to that. So I was one of the artists participating in this. So it's 200 years of artists coming to this site also. And um, so as part of that, I wrote these four compositions. So the ideas evolved there and um, I got, I had never finished and presented the works. I presented little bits of them, but never completed them. And I got a grant from NISCA um, to work with the sanctuary um, and Hudson Mohawk magazine and also um, Nature Lab to finish and present these works. And so it only made sense to adapt these concepts and develop them in the Troy environment that I live in now. So we've been doing a series of public events involving listening, um, recording, and the event on Saturday too, actually. So, yeah. And the old growth oh, piece yeah. has been really interesting to adapt to Troy because we're not in a huge forest, um, but we do have trees, we do have an ecosystem, and that ecosystem will get older. It will become mature and in the future. So it's interesting to think about that. Well, on the idea of forests, um... I'm somebody who has not been to the West Coast, but you were telling me about these old growth forests and um, how would you, like, how can somebody like me who hasn't been to the old growth forest, what can I not imagine ab about a forest, um, about these forests that you can only really experience from being there and listening? Well, the focus of this project is on the sound. So um, the sound, itself is informed by the space and the space is different than in a younger forest because you've got these like giant trees you have much more of a chaotic and varied landscape so a lot of like because of tree falls and things like that you have like things that um sort of create more variation in the ground as you're walking on it and also in the canopy different heights so that sound moves around in more varied ways too and it's also more insulated there's a lot more going on there's a more closed canopy in for the most part. Um, yeah, and just trees like that. I had never seen trees this big until I moved out there. Trees as big as the room I'm, trees of the diameter bigger than the room I'm sitting in right now. Um, things that fall from the canopy. That is incredible. So high up. Yeah, it's really, 
incredible. And the thing is, like, the forests that aren't old growth are also incredible. And it's amazing to watch them evolve and also and grow. And also, there's been so much fire. So now people are experiencing these forests having been burnt and the growth coming back after that. So, what have you learned about the forest by listening to them in this such unique way? Um, well, I've learned about what I can't hear, so which makes me more and more curious to hear even more sounds that I can't hear without without technology. So um, getting to know the sounds of streams in the Northwest in particular has been really exciting. Um, listening to insects like coming across like um a mound of ants, like a, a mound nest of ants and putting a microphone amongst the chaos of the ants there and hearing that movement. Um, I've learned just how silent these places are too. Um, I do work in the tropics and these, the Northwest is much quieter in, than the tropics um, in any aspect of sound in general. Um, yeah. So how is this experience getting translated to the sanctuary, which is just to clarify, not a forest, not a stream. <laughs> it's in an urban forest. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be translated as a quad speaker presentation. So there will be four speakers and you'll be able to move around the space as you like, as the works are playing. And so the sound moves between the speakers. Um, I like presenting work in that way because for many years, and, and I still do actually have a percussion ensemble and the players are really spread out sometimes and the sounds coming from different directions and really play with that. And so I really like that feeling of immersion um, of sound and also kind of like gestures towards how sound happens in a forest. It doesn't come from a single point. Um, but yeah, there's going to be a quad speaker presentation and it'll be on a loop, like an installation. And then also Nina, Isabel and Brian McCorkle are performing as well. They're doing like a really exciting presentation, including objects and a piano and movement and you should not miss their presentation. So um, being a uh, grad, uh, PhD student at RPI and having access to MPAC, how has their audio equipment, the tools that they use been able to inform your practice? I mean, you mentioned the, well, it, you're not using omnidirectional mics, but that's where I saw in the recent exhibition. It, it just makes me think that they're, um, so how, how has what you've seen through RPI informed what uh, the practice coming to the sanctuary on Saturday? Yeah, so I had the opportunity to develop works um, alongside a couple of colleagues a couple of years ago at MPAC and to use the ambisonic system in one of their studios there. So what is ambisonic? So it's a, it's a type of spatial audio where basically you can record something ambisonically where it recreates like the spatial, the spatial location of things, or you could render things ambisonically so people could hear them all around. And the, the basically ambisonic can be rendered for any number of speakers. So you have an ambisonic file and it basically means it can be adapted to stereo, to four speakers, to eight speakers. And that sound will be kind of adapted to however many speakers you have. So in that system also we had an XYZ axis and also um, the azimuth that we can move the sound around on. So it wasn't limited to the sort of linear square path between four speakers, but rather 
because of the positioning and the ambisonic system, you can move the sound in a much greater variety of directions. Um, yeah. So that informs this. I mean, that's a much more complicated and like varied movement in there, but it informed my desire to want to do those kinds of installations like I'll be doing on Saturday with the quad speaker. So when yeah. um, someone comes on Saturday, what kind of experience do you hope uh, visitors to have to come away from this with this from this performance? I hope that um, it informs their next experiences outside in the Troy neighborhood or perhaps in a nearby forest where they might think about sounds that they can't hear and what might be happening beyond their hearing. And I hope that it prompts conversations and people asking me questions and people asking each other questions and thoughts about the topics that we're listening, the, the, the beings that we're listening to. Yeah. And you did briefly mention Nina Isabella and uh, Brian McCorkle. How, um, why have them perform with you? Can you talk about the synergy between your, your yeah. pieces? So your Nina is a colleague of mine at RPI. She's also a doctorate student. And I just, every time I've seen Nina present work, I just like get really excited. She uses objects in percussion and also movement and is way into the perception of sound and um, has a playfulness to her work that I love. And Brian's her partner and he's just, I've seen him present work less often, but I've just only heard amazing things and they're gonna perform together. Um, so yeah. That's, well, exciting. So um, I think it'll be a really good compliment to the work. They're going to actually be present making the sounds with their bodies and, and objects, whereas my sounds will be just um, acousmatic, just in the speakers. So. And that is on Saturday, December 16th, beginning at 7 p.m., going until 9. Um, Lisa Schomburg, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me again, and thank you for being a partner on this project. Yeah, it's been exciting to see all the varied ways that your your sound and your compositions come out there. So thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Kaelin McPherson. Our engineer is also, well, I guess me, Kaelin <laughs> McPherson. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Segment producers were Mark Dunley, Brad Monkell, and of course, my co-host for tonight, Sina Bazilahiki, who also helped put this show together i couldn't have done it without her thank you cena and me galen mcpherson i also helped this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations if you value independent media consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org tune in on weekdays at 7 a.m 9 a.m and 6 p.m to hear local news or stream sanctuary radio at mediasanctuary.org Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate all of our listeners. Thanks to you for making this worthwhile.